Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today has a rare and chronic illness. He says the treatment of the condition changed beyond all recognition, where he went from being virtually terminally ill in his 20s to leading what, in many ways, is a normal life today. In this conversation, we explore how things might improve further and his role in making that happen. Here is Gunnar Asayasan. Gunnar, you're very welcome to the show. I'm really pleased to be speaking with you today. You were introduced to us by John Novak, who's, as you know, one of our favorite people here at the Health Design Podcast. And he usually picks very good guests. And I think you are in that category. I want to start off with your journey with a chronic illness that may, maybe some people don't know a lot about. Tell us about what it is and how it all started for you. Yeah, well, well, thanks for thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm living with cystic fibrosis. I'm I'm 30 years old, so for most people, their their one introduction to cystic fibrosis is usually a high school biology class, and in that class, they they learn sort of the very basics of genetics, but they also learn that cystic fibrosis is a childhood disease. Fortunately, cystic fibrosis is yeah, it's still a genetic disease, but it's no longer a childhood disease. We've had uh, some really tremendous progress made over the last several decades. And I think we'll sort of touch on that today. But my really elevator pitch for what is cystic fibrosis, it's an inherited recessive genetic disorder that really affects just about every organ in my body. But the, the primary issue is that an excess mucus buildup in my lungs leads to progressive respiratory disease that's sort of correlated with chronic bacterial infection in my lungs. So that's sort of the hallmark trait of cystic fibrosis, but it, it really does affect every part of my body from, from my digestive tract and my pancreas to the reproductive and, and fertility parts of, of living. So it's all-encompassing, it's wide-ranging, but the, the cystic fibrosis of today, I'm, I'm proud to report, is not the cystic fibrosis of my childhood. What was it like before that? You describe it as a childhood illness. It isn't anymore. Lots of people live long and fruitful lives with cystic fibrosis today. What was it like and where did the progress come from? Yeah. So, you know, the growing up with cystic fibrosis, you know, the early years were marked with some ups and downs and classic care for CF is really what I call active and arduous. It's, it requires a a full treatment session in the morning from inhaling steroids to mucolytics to you sort of thin the mucus out. And helps me cough it up. And then, of course, we treat those infections that people with cystic fibrosis develop early in life with inhaled antibiotics. So that's sort of, you know, one treatment session in the morning and then another treatment session in the evening. All told, it's about two and a half hours on on a daily basis. You know, we are also taking digestive enzymes to help us digest fats because our pancreas is sort of dysfunctional too. And, you know, as a child, I think I had a pretty typical, what I would consider American childhood played, you know, youth sports growing up. I played football. I played hockey. I played soccer, played little league baseball. My parents sent me to school. You know, I had tons of friends. I, uh, my younger sister and I were, were quite close. She does not have cystic fibrosis, fortunately. But the, the, the true, you know, mark of progress in CF was probably when I was diagnosed in 1993, my dad, who was in the peak of his NFL career, for those listeners who, who, who from the States who may know who my dad was, Boomer and I was playing for the New York Jets when he found out that I was diagnosed. And he and my mom 
founded the Boomer Science and Foundation, which today has raised in excess of $160 million in the fight against cystic fibrosis. And a lot of our work has gone in parallel to the National Cystic Fibrosis Foundation here in the U.S. And we've supported everything from therapeutic development to basic medical research. And then more recently, we've also started providing patient financial assistance in the shape of college scholarships, grant assistance for folks who are going through transplant. We've also, you know, maybe unfortunately, have had to also open up a, a COVID economic relief program for folks who are falling on hard financial times because of the pandemic. You can imagine living with a respiratory disease when there's a respiratory pandemic circling across the globe. It certainly leads to an interesting lifestyle, but also forces a number of unfortunate choices between health, job security, and things like that. So our foundation has really stepped in to, to help folks in the here and now. But you asked about where our progress came from. And the truth of the matter is the National Cystic Fibrosis Foundation here in the U.S., is something of an interesting organization, right? It's a charitable organization that funds all the basic biomedical research here, along with the National Institutes of Health here in the U.S. But it's also a financial institution insofar that it actually invests in biotechnology companies, right? So it's a little different than the typical foundation that may just execute grants with no strings attached. The foundation here actually does seek a return on the investments that it does make into the biotechnology industry. And we call it venture philanthropy, but what it really is, is a very unique and clever way for a foundation to use its capital resources. You know, the the fact of the matter is it costs quite a bit to develop a drug. And because of the size of the patient population, cystic fibrosis, about 30,000 patients in the U.S. and maybe 80 to 90,000 patients worldwide, for a drug maker to to tackle a disease like ours is a huge risk to take. And I think what the, the foundation really does try to do is make some of those, you know, th- those investments into R&D risk neutral for drug companies. And I think, you know, that's really one of the hallmark, hallmark qualities of, of the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. I'd love to know how this would translate into treatments for people who may be on the other side of the tracks. In other words, people who are not wealthy. Is this something that you think will be helpful to them? The work of the foundation and the fact that, as you say, the pharmaceutical industry would be interested in profit above all else, certainly in, in when it's manufacturing new drugs. Is this something that would help? I think everyone wants a drug, right? And I think there's got to be ways to figure out how to start the investment process into technologies. And to be clear, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation isn't providing the bulk majority of capital resources into these, into these drug companies, right? There's other, other capital sources from venture capitalists to, to you know, colloquially Wall Street and investors across the board. But the thing that the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation is able to provide in such a substantial way is they can provide the infrastructure that's required to get a drug from the test tube to the patient, right? So the CF Foundation controls basic science. They control the, uh, the, the scientific strategies inside cystic fibrosis. They can control the, the clinical trial know-how, the regulatory know-how with the FDA in the United States. And all of those things are so critically important to the drug development process. I think people just like love to look at <laughs> like price tags on drugs or cost of R&D or the cost to develop a drug. And all these things are, are big things. But that's just one piece of the drug development process. It's finding the patients, finding the, the investigators, finding the, the molecules, right? You, know, you look at a, 
a chemical library at, you know, XYZ pharmaceutical company. And they're just massive chemical libraries filled with all these chemical compounds that have to be tested to see if they work. And the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation can nudge these either companies or patients into the proper trials at the proper time to sort of make things work. And in CF, we have a class of drugs called CFTR modulators that essentially what they do is correct the underlying protein dysfunction at the heart of cystic fibrosis, right? So the CFTR gene is dysfunctional and it leads to this excess mucus production that I touched on earlier. And what these modulator drugs do is they actually correct that protein. So they're not treating the symptoms, they're, 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 they're treating the underlying cause of CF. And when you treat the underlying cause of CF, all of the classic cystic fibrosis symptoms from the deep watery cough, the mucus production to the fat intolerance to, you know, all these sort of issues that are related to that one protein in the body, they start to just go away, right? So, you know, I, I consider what we've achieved in cystic fibrosis to be one of the most significant medical achievements of the last several years probably only to be uh, displaced by the vaccine development uh, over the last uh, the last year of the pandemic. But the truth of the matter is, you know, the CF Foundation is able to get these drugs sort of started, but it really is upon the drug developers themselves to carry these drugs across the finish line, right? The CF Foundation cannot do that alone. They require capital far beyond what the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation can provide. But the good thing is here in the U.S., access for these drugs is is quite reasonable, right? You know, most people are able to get their hands on these drugs for for very, very low costs out of pocket. I think in the US, we do have some insurance reform that we really do need to have like more uh, substantial conversations around as far as out-of-pocket costs and things like that are concerned. But uh, for the most part, these drugs here in the US are changing lives very, very rapidly. That's fantastic to hear. So if you were diagnosed with cystic fibrosis today, what does the future look like relative to, say, would have, how it would have seemed a couple of decades ago? If you're diagnosed with a cystic fibrosis today, it's very much a livable condition, right? These CFTR modulators are appropriate for about 90% of the CF patient population based on the genetic profile that a patient may have. So it requires two mutations in the CFTR protein or CFTR gene uh, to lead to cystic fibrosis. And the CFTR modulators touch about 90% of all combinations of those two mutations. Unfortunately, there's about 10% of patients who, for genetic purposes, are not able to take these drugs. Protein that they create or the lack of protein that they, 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 their bodies create is just unable to be affected by, by the CFTR modulator class. So in, in that in sense of you know, what is cystic fibrosis today versus what, it, what was it when I was growing up, you know, those, those 10% of patients very much have the classical cystic fibrosis, meaning we still have a lot of work to do and a lot of work that we are doing to make sure that therapeutic options are, are able for the entire patient population. As for folks who are eligible for these modulator therapies, I mean, it, the sky is the limit here, right? And I'll use my own life as an example. By the time I graduated from Boston College, I finished my undergrad in 2013, I was very much on the precipice of end-stage illness. Right, getting from the bed, you know, from the bedroom to the bathroom in the morning was a challenge when I was at my absolute worst. From 2013 to 2018, I underwent about two dozen medical interventions, from surgeries to bronchoscopies to intravenous IV antibiotic therapy. I mean, it was crazy back then, and I was lucky if I was able to string together a couple good weeks in a row, let alone a couple good days. Right, it was a very, very ugly existence to the point where. 
the bacteria living in my lungs was, become, was growing and evolving to become impervious to the antibiotics that we're using to treat it, like antibiotic resistance is what we call it. It was a hard way to live, right? And it's because you're, you're, you're having the conversation with the doctor that you, know, you see on TV or you see in the movies where the doctor comes to the room and says, Gunnar, you know, we're running out of options. Those were conversations that I was having in my early 20s. And I was in a tough place because, you know, you, you're graduating from college. You see your friends go off into the world and start their careers, start the earliest stages of, of family planning and things like that. But for me, I was sort of stuck in this rut wherein I finally had the opportunity to enroll in clinical trials for these CFTR modulator drugs. And finally, in 2018, I enrolled into a, a, trial, a trial program for our most recently approved drug. And I mean, it worked overnight from the point of going from that stuck in the rut to not being able to string a couple of good days or a couple of good weeks together to all of a sudden I could breathe almost overnight. You know, within a few days, my cough dissipated. Within a few more days, I had no more mucus production. And then a week or two later, my pulmonary function test, which is the gold standard test for understanding the, the severity of the disease for a person with CF, just reversed, right? My lung function was going up instead of down. And then I had to come to, to reality that I had a future in front of me. I was like, oh my God, what do I do now? Right. I was living in such a with such a in such a way that I had no felt like I had no future in, in front of me. Uh, where all of a sudden I, you know, the world is my oyster. Enrolled in grad school and got married. And, you know, we have a we, my wife and I were expecting a, our first child in December. So the fact of the matter is that three pills every day from 2018 through today in 2021 have changed and unlocked my life in ways that I probably couldn't have ever imagined. So to come back to your initial question, I think a lot of people with cystic fibrosis now have that future in front of them. And that's what gives me so much hope these days. That's absolutely fantastic. And it's so good to see that you don't look like somebody with a chronic illness, which is amazing. What about the healthcare system generally? Because cystic fibrosis is a relatively uncommon condition. How is healthcare responding to patients with this? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I think, I think the healthcare industry is way too complex. I think cystic fibrosis is treated in such a unique way in the US that it's somewhat of an outlier when people think of like the US healthcare system or the healthcare system in general, right? Care for cystic fibrosis is by nature interdisciplinary. And, you know, that's not general for you know the way most people think about receiving healthcare. And I'm I'm biased here, but I do think that it is the appropriate way to receive healthcare, right? On the cystic fibrosis team in the United States clinic, um, it does vary around the world a little bit, is the pulmonologist or you know the doctor who sort of like leads the entire thing. There's a dietitian, there is a social worker or mental health worker, there is a respiratory therapist, there's a physical therapist, there's a nurse, nurse practitioner. And then tangentially, there's also gastrointestinal doctors, there's osteoorthopedic doctors, and other, you know, other sort of tangential physicians who may talk to CF patient. And then beyond that, there's also a doorway to transplant medicine, right? So as far as the care delivery path part of the healthcare industry, it is inherently multidisciplinary. And I think what that does is when someone doesn't have an answer or when something and, you know, a question is outside of the specialty of, say, the pulmonologist, it's a very easy referral pathway to another specialist on the team or near the team. So that, that's what, those are my comments on, on, the, on the care delivery aspect. 
I think as far as access to healthcare concerns, you know, I think in the U.S., we have 50 different states with 50 different insurance, Medicare, and Medicaid laws. And that can lead to some, some unfortunate chaos and, and quite a few gaps that do exist. Right. So earlier I mentioned the need for insurance reform in the U.S. And that's true. Right. And what I mean by that is there are insurance gaps that exist. And there are nudges and economic disincentives that the insurance industry does burden patients with, right? So the classic example for someone who you know lives in the U.S. will know, you know, sort of know the buzzwords that I'm going to be talking about from prior authorization to co-pays to out-of-pockets. All of these are disincentives, or rather, incentives to be choosing drugs that the insurance company thinks or the payer thinks the patient should be on. And there are ways to navigate this, but the truth is it then puts a huge administrative burden on the physician who's delivering the care, right? So the doctor, you know, the, our physicians go from, you know, care providers to caseworkers. And I can imagine that most physicians in the United States, and you're smiling and maybe you included, don't never imagine that you'd be in a position where you're uh, also an administrator of care too. So those are kinds of the kind of the issues that we deal with here in the U.S. as far as CF care is concerned. But the good news is that, and I'll bring this back to the CF Foundation. I'll pay them another compliment. The Cystic Fibrosis Care Centers, you know, receive accreditation from the CF Foundation because they're held to such a high standard for care. And the truth is, yeah, we've had all these amazing therapeutic breakthroughs in CF, but general standard care and supportive care has also dramatically improved over the last couple of decades as well. And that's really just as important, right? Because that tells me that people are, are able to access supportive care. They're able to get the care they need and they're able to access these breakthrough drugs. Of course, some people do you know, slip through the cracks and we really have to study why that's happening. It's not gonna be a generalized you know, one-shot fix for some of these issues. It's really prudent that advocates and policymakers are able to understand why individual people are falling through the cracks on a micro level. I think policymakers are so used to fixing things on a macro level. Let's just pass one fall sweep of legislation. Everything is fixed. Everyone's happy. That's not quite how it really works. It's important to just really know and, and really listen to people and understand why they are falling through the cracks or why they think they're falling through the cracks so that uh, decisions can be informed based on their experiences. What percentage of patients do you think fall through the cracks? Do you think this is a common experience, or do you think that it depends on where you live and a whole raft of other things? It's going to vary within the United States. It's going to vary country to country. For example, right now, Australia does not have access to the, CF, you know, the, the latest class of CFTR modulators, and it's a major, major issue. You, know, you think a country like Australia would be able to afford precision medication. And I think that's commentary really on the way healthcare is going. Maybe cystic fibrosis is the first case study after all. You know, I did go to business school. So I, I like to think that I understand the business of healthcare at least a little bit. Otherwise, I overpaid for my tuition. You think about countries like Australia, like the, like the US, like Germany, like Canada, United Kingdom. The reason they're paying such a high price for some of these drugs is to subsidize drug access for lesser economically developed countries, right? That is a key part of this. And whenever some countries don't play their part in this in this drug access sort of puzzle, it is affecting the downstream patient, you know, the patient who's living in a country that just reasonably can't afford for precision, for precision medicine. It's just simple economics here. But at the same time, 
It's also having an upstream effect and is putting a greater weight on patients who do have access to subsidize those, that access down, down the stream as well. So I think that's some commentary on some of the macro issues here across, the, across country lines. But here in the U.S., it is definitely a small number who have trouble accessing some drugs or accessing care. And there's a lot of different determinants of health that play into that, right? If you're living, let's say, in the Midwest, it's a big, giant area. Your closest cystic fibrosis center is hundreds of miles away. That's a hard thing to do, right? It's a hard thing to get your four quarterly visits per year in front of a cystic fibrosis doctor. You know, that's a challenge. And I think I do feel empowered really by the last year, of, you know, the last 18 months, rather, of telehealth. I think that's going to be a big step forward for CF patients who have a hard time accessing cystic fibrosis clinics or you know, have to take significant time off work to travel to a cystic fibrosis clinic, the rise of remote patient monitoring, remote patient outcomes. Those are all empowering things that I think we've learned from the pandemic that I want to be applied to the standard of care moving forward, especially with complex medical conditions that can be managed from home, right? That, that's kind of what I want to see moving forward. Gunnar, how can our listeners get involved with the work that you're doing? What would you like help with? Where do you see the priorities in the next decade? I think if people want to learn more about me, they can go to, I've got a podcast, The State of Health with Gunnar Esiason, wherever you get your podcasts. I've got a website, GunnarEsiason.com. And our Families Foundation, uh, the Boomer Esiason Foundation, can be seen at Esiason.org. So that's where you can find me and kind of see what we're doing. And then, of course, the National Cystic Fibrosis Foundation is a great partner of ours here in the United States as well. I can't, can't, can't pay them enough compliments. But what do I see moving forward? Well, one, I want to see a few things. First, uh, the United States right now has to take these lessons from the pandemic and learn how we really screwed it up in the early days and apply it moving forward. I look forward to reading Scott Gottlieb's book, Uncontrolled Spread. Just came out not long ago. Definitely been a big fan of his over the, over the past 18 months. Looking forward to reading his thoughts. But also, we saw how an infectious disease was able to take over the world, right, in a matter of months. I mean, that is a crazy thing. But this isn't going to be the last infectious disease, right? We're already living in this world where antibiotics are losing their efficacy and no new antibiotics are coming up behind them. So I have been a champion of late about talking about antibiotic resistance. It's something that people with cystic fibrosis deal with on a daily basis because we are relying on antibiotics. So that's one thing. We have to understand how antibiotics are a unique class of drugs that require a unique regulatory framework around them. So that's one. And in the United States, we have a couple of proposed legislative bills on the table from the Pastor Act, Disarm, that will hopefully address that in the United States. And I know other countries outside the U.S. are also looking at, at similar things. The United Kingdom has really been a, a real champion in, in this effort. Two, I want to see us continue to take lessons from the pandemic and apply them to general care delivery from telehealth to remote patient monitoring, remote home reported outcomes, patient reported outcomes. Those things need to become standardized and we need to believe in them, right? So there needs to be a body of academic work and a body of academic literature that sits underneath and empowers patients to be able to take that role on. I think We've lived in a healthcare industry for so long that has really looked at patients as maybe a rung below or a few rungs below the care provider, the physicians. And no offense to you, I know you're a family physician, but you know I, I do think that there it is time that patients are given the tools, especially now because we do live in this era of information, 
right? Let's not kid ourselves. When a, when a patient gets some bad news at the clinic, the first thing they're going to do is Google it, or they're going to find somebody who's had the disease before and talk to him about it. There's so much angst around that and so much animosity around that, that I would like to see patients actually, you know, get empowered to search, but search in the right way to search for the right kind of information. That's got to be what's happening. So those are two kind of big buckets there. As far as cystic fibrosis is concerned and maybe rare diseases at large, I would love to see different clinical trial models from synthetic control arms, right? So that the placebo isn't as much of a problem uh, for patients enrolling in trials as it will be. And I, you know, I've done a number of clinical trials myself, and I will tell you the idea that you might get the placebo really, really sucks, right? You're doing your job and you're doing your duty. And that's what you tell yourself about getting the placebo that someone's got to get it. But it, nonetheless, it does suck because you do feel like you're, you're diving yourself into science. And guess what? It's science is looking the other way. So I, I do want there to be study around synthetic control arms. I do want there to be you know, study around adaptive clinical trial platforms, home reported clinical trials, just different clinical trials and model, uh, models in general that can still stick to the, the gold standard randomized control trial, but different, maybe more accessible. Finally, and I know we've talked about drug access a little bit, but one group I am involved with called No Patient Left Behind, we do advocate for insurance reform here in the United States. But also on the back end, we are, we are committed to contractual genericization or genericization without delay, right? So what we mean by that is a drug goes from being branded or on patent for X number of years, usually 10 to 15, 20 years. And then as soon as that, ha- as soon as that period is up, it goes generic, and then the, uh, the free market takes over and brings drug prices down. Too often do you see drug makers sort of skirting around that regulation or getting around that regulation. And I want to see that sort of end, right? The truth is the drug should be able to provide value for both the patient and the drug company early in a drug's life because they invested so much time and resources into getting a drug across the finish line. It's not easy the expected value of a drug in phase one or preclinical is very, very low. But as of course, as it as it matures, it becomes more of a lucrative asset for the drug maker. But at the same time, the payer, whether it's a commercial insurer in the United States, a government entity that's paying for a drug for a patient, has to be able to benefit from it in some way. And that way is when the drug does go generic, right? When the drug goes to generic, the patient is able to benefit. That's just the, the classic simple definition of a generic drug. It has to be materially equivalent in all ways, safety and efficacy. But at the same time for the payer, it's a hell of a lot less cheaper because there's competition in the market when multiple generics are competing over the same patient population. So those are my my several buckets, right? Enhanced clinic models. I want to see better clinical trials. I want to see focus on antibiotic resistance. And I want to see reform in the drug and payer area with uh, contractual genericization after drugs leave their branded exclusivity periods. You're going to be a busy man. <laughs> you are a busy man. I can't believe the amount of energy and commitment. You clearly have skin in the game, Gunnar. You are making a difference to patients, not only with cystic fibrosis, but with any rare or chronic illness. It's been a great pleasure introducing you to our listeners. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate this. The Health Design Podcast. Sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.